You've just tuned into Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Welcome back to Beyond Your Past, the podcast that focuses on inspiring you to move forward from what's been holding you back in life. Each week, we talk with clinicians, coaches, mental health advocates, and those who've overcome tremendous odds and now use their journey to encourage you throughout yours. I'm Matt Pappas, Certified Coach and NLP Master Practitioner, alongside Joanne Suppressi, Author, Certified Coach, and Hypnotherapist. In addition to talking with amazing guests on the show, we share practical tips and insightful strategies that empower and encourage you to break free from anxiety, self-doubt, and the negative mindsets that keep you stuck. This is your place to feel validated and encouraged as you take your life back and live free from your past. Greetings, friend, and welcome back to the podcast. Before we get started, we'd like to take a second and thank a couple of incredible organizations. INLP Center, offering a world-class online neurolinguistic programming and life coach training to people in over 70 countries. If you've ever considered becoming a coach or simply want more information on their programs, just head over to inlpcenter.org and to daily recovery support. Interactive, daily, group calls in a safe atmosphere for survivors of complex trauma, equipping you with the skills and information you can use every single day in your healing journey. Learn more about this affordable resource and get signed up at cptsdfoundation.org. And a special thank you to you. We appreciate you listening to the podcast and making us part of your weekly playlist. You all are the reason we do this show and we wouldn't be here without you. Please consider sharing this episode with one person who might find it helpful. We would definitely appreciate that. So today we're talking with licensed professional counselor, Melissa Glazer. Melissa is also a community response and recovery leader and was directly involved as a coordinator of the Newtown Recovery and Resilience Team from 2014 to 2016, which was in response to the Sandy Hook School shooting. Her expertise in helping communities begin the healing process after experiencing a mass trauma is the reason that we wanted to bring her on the show today. Not to talk about gun control or why somebody does this horrific type of act, but rather to outline the importance of equipping communities with the support they need to begin healing. We talk about the multiple types of support modalities needed to help victims and their families feel safe, grounded, and be able to be open to working through the trauma. We discuss the various stages of crisis management that first responders and clinicians face when working with a community, and Melissa shares her insight on the challenges of working with the media and politicians and how the messages they send out after a tragedy can actually hinder the recovery and healing of the community. We discuss experiencing survivor's guilt in multiple ways after a mass trauma, as well as the ways we as a society can improve in helping communities heal. All this and much more during our chat with Melissa Glazier, starting right now. So hey, Melissa, welcome to Beyond Your Past. It's Matt and Joanne. How are you? Hi, I'm happy to spend some time with you. Thank you. We are very excited to have you on the show today. We're going to learn a lot about the work you do and lessons for recovery after large-scale trauma and your um, expertise in this area. So before we get into all of that, um, if you want to take a minute and say hello and um, introduce yourself, that would be great. Hi, I'm Melissa Glazer. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I uh, have been uh, doing behavioral health work for about 35 years, which has included lots of community-based work in many different settings, um, as well as a busy uh, private practice, um, private clinical practice that I've had for 30 years. 
along with that, uh, I found myself um, as the coordinator of the um, Newtown Recovery and Resiliency Team, which was formed um, after the Sandy Hook School shooting. And uh, my work in that community was to oversee um, a very large uh, federal grant, which was the first of its kind, to uh, take care of all of the fallout, impact, um, and recovery needs of the entire community in that town. Wow. Yeah. So why don't we actually start out and, and kind of talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, you mentioned about being a counselor and having a private practice. And so how did yeah. you get involved in um, helping all of the, the families of the survivors of and, and those who lost their lives at the uh, Sandy Hook community? Yeah. Well, at the time of the shooting, uh, I was the director of behavioral health for Catholic Charities and Fairfield County, Connecticut. So Sandy Hook and Newtown um, were part of that catchment area. And uh, when the tragedy hit, uh, I was busy uh, quickly doing some um, first responder work and then writing some grants and putting together uh, some clinical work uh, that could help individuals in the community um, as well as families um, that were going to need um, some extra um, healing work, um, extra uh, work in terms of their own individual trauma. So I was doing that, and the town wrote a grant to um, Department of Justice asking for help and resources. And when that grant was finally realized, uh, they posted uh, a position for somebody to come in and oversee all of that work and start from the ground up in building a team and access points and uh, a, a mechanism for anybody needing help to get it. And I applied for that and was granted the position. So um, because of my uh, community background, as well as my expertise in trauma, and a uh, long history of doing clinical work, I was a good match for that job. Sounds like you had a lot of work to do um, Yes. with this. Yes. So can you explain some of what you actually did to make an impact and to help these victims of the Sandy Hook community? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, my book, Healing a Community, uh, it really outlines all of the work that we did from start to finish. So the grant was put in place and only supposed to be in place for 18 months, which now when we realize the impact of these tragedies is a ridiculously small amount of time. We were able to uh, push uh, the time limit out a few extra months. So I was actually in the community doing the work about 21 months. Um, there was no roadmap. There was no uh, particular resource that I could turn to to tell me what the landscape was going to look like and what the needs were going to be. So part of uh, the work entailed uh, doing some community need surveys, getting out in the community and finding out where the gaps were and what individuals as well as groups needed. And uh, then one of the first things I did was set about hiring a team of professionals to work with me and then building um, an access point 
for anybody to be able to come in and get help, as well as, you know, a large scale programming for subsets in the community like the first responders or the clinicians or the clergy um, or the teachers that were so highly impacted. Uh, so the work was uh, kind of juggling a lot of balls on different levels and continuing to evolve as we made headway and people built trust in us and opened up about where they were at. A big part of the work also involved kind of managing money and assessing people's needs and um, how they could ask, access funding. And uh, a big part of my job in particular was managing the politics of these far-ranging needs and um, the communication, some that was good, some that they were was very lacking um, to continue to get that message out that when we look at tragedies like this, the um, traumatic impact on individuals um, is, is first, you know, the ripple effects, um, you know, it impacts so many that most of us uh, don't even uh, think about. So not just the people that were on the scene, but, you know, the, the babysitters and the soccer coaches and the bus drivers and the grandparents um, and the neighbors uh, and people from neighboring towns that uh, were, you know, watching this as it unfolded, um, as well as, you know, the, the helpers that came in and were continuing to have a role, but now impacted themselves. So the ripples were far reaching and uh, the, the work, uh, as I've described in my book, you know, I believe is, you know, a 10 to 15 year process, certainly not an 18 month process. So because of that, most of what I uh, formulated for the town, um, I did it with a lens of believing that it had to be able to sustain itself beyond our tenure there. So everything that we put together was with the idea that once we stepped away, um, it could be continued. That gives you a little bit of an idea <laughs> of uh, of the work that we were, we were doing. And as we were winding up, it became so apparent to me, you know, uh, th there were tragedies that were still unfolding around the country. Unfortunately, now, you know, it feels like every time we turn on the news, you know, every couple of days, every couple of weeks, there's another new community tragedy that hits. So as I was winding down um, with our work, uh, I really felt like it would be important to document what we had learned and how we went about our work, um, the advantages as well as disadvantages, the uh, the things that we would have done differently, as well as uh, all that we were successful at so that other communities could use us. Melissa, it sounds like this was, uh, there were so many parts involved, so many people involved, so many yeah things to consider, um, mm -hmm. you really had a, a big task to fulfill emotionally, mentally, physically, um, so many different areas to focus on. I am sure that you've built so many amazing relationships um, while uh, working uh, to heal this community. Mm -hmm. 
And I can only imagine the personal growth that you probably experienced too, because a lot of these things I am assuming you did not directly deal with in the past. Thank you, you know, for that. I think that uh, it's an honor to work among, um, you know, people that uh, you need to help them, you know, find the language to express what their needs are, and then hopefully to help them recover and grow and be able to move forward in their lives um, after um, experiencing something where it feels like everything's been shattered and there's no way to pick up the pieces. Uh, So, you know, my book also outlines for people going into this kind of work that it is important to know um, that, you know, in the end you can look back and feel the successes and the rewards. But when you're in the thick of it, um, it's pretty messy work and, it's not necessarily going to be a situation where you walk in and you're welcomed with open arms. It will definitely be a situation where you're walking in and uh, experiencing firsthand people's pain and suffering, which often can um, manifest um, through anger and frustration and fear and distrust. So, uh, all of those are things to be aware of and to know that you will definitely grow, as you have said, you know, earlier, you will definitely grow as a clinician, as an individual in the situation. And you have to be willing to kind of flex yourself and uh, learn as you go and bring in the experts when you don't have um, all of the answers. Everything you're saying is just, it's, it's, it's so profound. I mean, I think uh, anyone who's listening, uh, you know, who lives in the U.S. and probably anywhere around the world, I mean, this, this was worldwide news. It was certainly huge in the U.S. for just for so long. And it still, uh, you know, is in the news periodically with updates on how the community is, is you know, coming together and working to, uh, you know, help each other as the hurt and pain continues to heal. So I'm curious, uh, maybe you can share a little bit about the psychological needs of the survivors, you know, the families, the parents, the teachers, the first responders, what can we do to understand what that's like for someone? Yeah, sure. I, I think uh, there are stages of the work, of the recovery work. And, um, you know, recovery is where you start and your goal is to help somebody get to a place of um, resilience, you know, which is uh, where they're functioning not the same as they were before because that will never be the same, but functioning in an optimal way and able to really um, now kind of walk the walk and talk the talk and reach out to their neighbor. But the recovery um, aspect um, comes in different stages. I came on board to work directly in the community um, about a year and a half after the actual shooting um, And that's because it took that long for this grant to be written and approved. So before I came on board, we looked at that as really the crisis management phase of recovery, where most people impacted were just completely dysregulated in their own bodies, in their own lives. And uh, you saw a lot of acute uh, symptomology. People, you know, couldn't work anymore. Um, 
emotionally were continuously dysregulated, were um, finding themselves immobile, unable to make um, simple decisions, uh, it, you know, um, turning to unhealthy means to get some relief from what they were experiencing in their mind and their body, you know, high levels of anxiety and depression. When I came on board, we call that the consequence phase or consequence management phase. And that's when you really begin to see the long-term fallout. That's when, you know, marriages are challenged and um, parents are uh, making, uh, either not making um, changes that they should or making changes that maybe are not the healthiest. That's when things like um, substance use is increasing and suicide ideation is increasing and uh, people are dropping out of school. And uh, now people that were unable to return back to work because of their emotional state are now experiencing um, financial difficulties. And, uh, you know, if relationships um, and some of these other, uh, you know, um, issues were present before the tragedy, then they're really going to be highlighted after the tragedy. So, uh, it, you know, that would be that consequence phase. And, you know, so much of what I thought I would be uh, doing clinically um, was ended up not being the case. I'm, you know, a trained uh, cognitive behavior therapist and a thought which is, you know, more on the traditional talk therapy line. And when I stepped into the role, I quickly realized that uh, there were many, many individuals that couldn't do talk therapy because they were not grounded in their own mind, in their own body enough to be able to express what they needed to and tell their story. So we learned very quickly that it, we had to bring in all kinds of expressive therapies um, and other alternative strategies and things like acupuncture and uh, music therapy and art therapy and you know, prescribing uh, yoga and meditation and doing um, all kinds of um, the, you know, body type biofeedback and, and neurofeedback and uh, cranial work and get people grounded um, before they could then move on and do the talk therapy. So uh, it, that's all part of the consequence. And, you know, I think the phase after that is really helping the community as a whole build back a sense of trust, you know, a sense of being able to connect again um, with others in a wider way. And then finally, that idea of how do we turn this tragedy and how it's impacted us into something um, that can help others, into something that uh, it can be useful. It's amazing all of the issues that come up and the uh, the circumstances that become created because of a situation. So people tend to focus, you know, on the shooter and the shootings, and they tend to seem to be more outraged, you know, by what happened instead of taking a deeper look 
at the healing of the community, you know, especially especially in the media. Um, this is something I wish the media would notice more and recognize more. You know, seeing that these are real people, they have to go through healing, let them heal, uh, be there, encourage them instead of being outraged. You mentioned earlier that part of what you were doing had to do with dealing with the media. So can you share a little bit of how you approach that? I talk a lot now about, you know, this idea that uh, these tragedies happen and, and it's a tough balance. We know the world wants to know and wants to help. But on the other hand, sometimes it feels like the media is transcending on, you know, really vulnerable individuals very quickly to fill their news feed. And uh, I, I often felt in Newtown like microphones were being thrust in front of people um, when they weren't quite ready to tell their story, but they would choose to tell it because they would be in conflict. You know, this is an opportunity to tell, to talk about my child that isn't here anymore. Um, and I may not get an opportunity like this again. Or, you know, this is an opportunity to bring my thoughts and feelings to the forefront. But, it, you know, what we see when we turn on the news um, and what I pick up on immediately is um, people that are being exposed that, you know, when that camera is turned off, may sit back and say, I don't know if that was value added. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. It didn't come out the way that I had hoped. Um, I uh, feel a little taken advantage of. And it can be really damaging. It, it, instead of helping someone heal, it, you know, it can put them back into a very vulnerable state of, um, I, I wish I had held off. And now I distrust even more. Sometimes when stories come out, it also creates controversy within the community. You know, some people feel one way. There might be another camp that feels very differently. I always felt when I was at a meeting, making a presentation, explaining uh, some of the findings that uh, were coming through our office, that when I was talking, I knew that there would be two people that were in agreement and liked what I had to say and two people that would be really upset and not like what I had to say. You know, there's always push and pull. Everybody's at a different place in their needs and their recovery. And often when the media transcends, they're not aware of all that. Um, they, they want their story now. So I try to counsel and say, you can always go back. There's always time. You know, you won't have regrets if you wait a little bit and get yourself into a more grounded place and take the time to think through how you want this to be told. So that, that's a piece. And, you know, we still see it all the time um, as we hear about the next tragedy. The other piece that you have to grapple with when you are um, in the field of helping um, or doing clinical work in these situations is that often the 
the politicians, you know, the governing bodies that are in front of the community, they have a different agenda. And their agenda, which is understandable, is to present to the world that everybody's okay, that everyone's going to move on, that we won't let this define us. I was just hearing uh, the governor in Virginia talk in that fashion. And you understand it because that individual wants to prop their community up. But on the other side of that, you know, the real reality and the truth is this community has been shattered and there's a lot of work to be done for a long time. Um, you know, we can create sometimes a sense of, you know, a, a survivor's guilt. Well, maybe I shouldn't be feeling as bad as I do because when I turn on the news, I'm hearing, you know, we're all doing okay, but I don't feel like I'm doing okay. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me, or maybe I shouldn't reach out and ask for help because somebody else may be able to use it because the media is saying, you know, everybody's, everybody's going to be fine. My, you know, um, first selectman, my governor, my mayor is saying, you know, this community will be okay. So we have to be really careful. You know, we're also seeing, I think, some new phenomena that are happening. Um, when we see the media portraying, you know, individuals, especially young individual students, as heroes because they jumped in the line of fire and lost their lives um, by sacrificing um, somebody else, catching a bullet. Um, I think we have to be careful because now, you know, there's this new sense of for a student, for a child, for a minor to be thinking, if this happens in my school, in my community, is it my job to take that bullet? And if I don't, is there, you know, am I negligent or will I always feel guilty if I hid behind the desk or if I ran to safety rather than you know, being the hero and taking that bullet. So, you know, uh, well, the media, we walk the line, you know, we want to hear about what's happening. We want to be present to these tragedies. We also have to be really careful about how we're portraying things and how quickly we're thrusting people into a, a situation that they're not quite ready to be in. Everything you're saying is just, it's so spot on. And I have, I have so many questions in my head and I know we only have a limited amount of time whenever this stuff comes on the news, you know, for those of us who, who are not right in the middle of it, either as a, as a first responder or a clinician or, you know, a doctor or uh, whoever it may be for those who are out of the area and yeah. just see it on the news and it's on so often and you're just getting pounded with, you know, the shootings and the violence and, 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 and then, and then, as you said, you get this 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 completely opposite message of yes this this was traumatic but we're going to heal we're going to rebuild we're going to do this we're going to do that and it takes your survivor's guilt on on some kind of like a crazy road trip of just all over the place because you know part of you says i need to watch this to be informed part of me says no i need to back off so i can grieve part of me says i need yeah. to get involved part of me says they're already healed i mean maybe talk a little bit more about that struggle of survivor's guilt cuz i know when i see something on tv i'm like 
you know, maybe I can, you know, uh, donate some money or call to offer my services or something. And then I go through everything that you just said. And I'm like, well, now I'm not sure what to do. Right. Right. Yeah. Survivor's guilt is, it's tough and it's real. You know, uh, we experienced it with, um, not with individuals that were, you know, directly impacted as well as people from other communities, um, that were, we're watching the newsreel 24 seven and, uh, you know, wanting so badly to make a difference. Um, you know, some of, and people have heard these stories about Newtown people poured in, you know, all kinds of, um, objects and material things, um, in order to sometimes assuage their difficult feelings, their guilt. And that created, more of a problem you know the town literally had to rent a warehouse to house all these objects that you weren't going to help the individuals or the families that lost a loved one and um, then there were decisions that had to be made and people had to be hired just to manage that Um, so you know that isn't necessarily the way to go when you have survivor's guilt Um, you know I, I think when you're realizing that you're either in conflict with your feelings about what you're seeing and watching, um, or you're impulsively acting, trying to get some relief yourself, that's a good time to reach out and, uh, you know, maybe speak to a counselor or, you know, maybe call into uh, a resource center that can give you a little more guidance. But uh, people that are in a situation where, they have to make a split decision about, do I go home tonight by um, doing everything I can to stay safe? Or, you know, do I uh, act in a way that maybe goes against all the protocol and all those uh, lockdown drills and things that I've been taught um, because I might be able to make a difference? Um, now, you know, we, when people are in the throes of that and then the tragedy ends, we're creating so much more anxiety and inner conflict. So at the end of the day, we want everybody to go home. We don't want somebody to take a bullet unnecessarily. And we can't expect that untrained individuals are going to be able to make those decisions and then, um, you know, uh, be able to, if they survive, move forward without huge emotional impact. Something you mentioned about, you know, along along the lines of, of the survivor guild is when you hear stories of how a student or a person, you know, in the school jumped in yeah. front of the bullet or, you know, or tried to do something to, to stop the shooter or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, as you mentioned, kids in schools now and of course even teachers and janitors and and you know office personnel and everybody they're like well if that happened to me should i do that well wait what if i don't am i not a hero and so maybe share a little about that because i i I would imagine that's probably more of a struggle than we might really realize is when you hear the hero stories of somebody who tragically lost their life a lot of times i i would imagine you know if you're ever confronted with, with that situation you would feel all kinds of emotions all over the spectrum. I think that's probably something that happens more often than we would imagine. Yeah. I think the way you just depicted it is, um, you know, in a simple way, um, what survivor guilt is all about. And um, 
people are going to have it no matter what, you know. Uh, when we, I was in Newtown, you know, I heard it from a bus driver who couldn't shake the idea that she drove some of these kids to their death, right? Well, of course, she couldn't have known, and she was just doing her job, but in her mind, you know, she drove them to their death that day. And, you know, I would hear it from uh, a parent that was in the school um, that morning for another reason. And when the shooting started, you know, hid um, under a desk and couldn't shake the idea that maybe she, sh she shouldn't have done that and should have done something different. Um, and, uh, you know, I heard from a municipal um, personnel, someone that worked in the town hall, um, and she said to me, I can't go to sleep at night until I recount every name of every person that was lost. And if I can't remember a name, I have to get out of bed and go to my list on my desk and reread it. So survivor guilt comes in every form, you know, so it's even, I can't allow myself to forget. I'm afraid that this will be forgotten. Uh, and, you know, it, it is, it, it's a real uh, clinical phenomena. And um, now we're seeing more layers of, you know, people making decisions that put others in a situation of questioning even more. What's my role? What should I do? Did I do it well enough? You know, I remember talking to an individual in Newtown who um, was, there were two families that lived next to each other that were extremely close and both had a son the same age in different classrooms next to each other in the school. And one little boy died and the other one came home. And that neighbor felt so grateful that her son came home, but also so horrified that, you know, for some random reason, her son came home and the other families didn't. And now how do you approach that family and how do you resume a relationship? And what can you possibly say or do that will be comforting or supportive? So, you know, again, another form of this survivor's guilt. Yeah, we, uh, you know, no question, um, there will be many individuals that um, carry that for the rest of their lives after each of these tragedies. Melissa, we've talked about so many different layers of what has happened. And after mass shootings, uh, we talked about, you know, victims and their struggles, the community, the media, and so many, so many layers and layers issues and concerns and you know what happens afterwards and i know you've learned a lot we've learned a lot victims have learned a lot communities have learned a lot so i'm wondering from your professional point of view and everything you've experienced um do you believe that our ability to attend to these psychological and emotional needs of survivors of mass shootings do you think that has improved since the situation since you've been involved? I believe our ability to attend to um, individuals has absolutely improved in um, 
huge ways, and I'll talk about that in a second, but I do feel like our ability to be proactive, um, you know, with these individuals that are carrying out these tragedies that, you know, all have some element of mental health issue. Um, I don't think we're making much headway at all, you know, and it's disappointing and upsetting to say that, but it doesn't feel to me like we're focusing enough on that and making change so that these tragedies, you know, um, occur less frequently or don't occur at all. So, you know, our access to mental health care has not increased. Um, our ability to maybe hold individuals that we're concerned about um, or to be able to speak out and see some um, action taken has not really increased. And, you know, we are living now in a society where there are just so many disenfranchised individuals that can't seem to feel they can make a go of it, um, you know, financially, physically, emotionally. We're also, um, you know, bring, you know, there's a generation of uh, millennials that are coming into young adulthood feeling so anxious and confused and not having a sense of security about what their future is going to look like. So that piece, we have a lot of work to do. In terms of uh, taking care of those that are impacted, um, from when I was in Sandy Hook to now, we've uh, come up a tremendous way in terms of learning about the mind-body connection and that you have to treat the whole body and you uh, have to help people to find the language um, to express what they need and you have to hold their hand and uh, in order to get get them the help and be the person that's doing the follow-through. Um, we've come a really long way in that area. The idea of layering treatments that help to ground a person in their body um, before we start, you know, uh, doing the cognitive work. Um, there's been such groundbreaking work in that area. And uh, so that that's come a long way, too. Unfortunately, as we go through these these situations that just seem to be, be hap- that that seem to be happening more and more frequently, yeah. the more you can see the progress we're making, but also as you mentioned, the more you can see the areas where we still have a ton of work to do. So it, it can give us hope that we are learning from these areas and we are helping others and we are understanding treatment that we can, you know, start to utilize right away in terms of helping to get the survivors grounded and stable before we start working on a therapy approach. And then, of course, hopefully continuing to learn how we can be proactive and get people the help and the resources they need and it's available so we're not have to scrap, you know, so we're not scrambling for it in the event of an emergency. So I, it, it speaks again, I, I think, as you mentioned, well, it speaks to how far we've come, but how much more we have to do in certain areas and the people um, that you work with and in the communities that you serve, I think have benefited greatly from your, from your expertise and your team's uh, awareness of this. And so maybe you could share with us where exactly, um, you know, people can find your book and find you and learn more um, about what you've um, done uh, throughout your uh, career in this area. 
Great. Absolutely. So my book is called Healing a Community, Lessons for Recovery After a Large-Scale Trauma. Um, it is. Uh, it can be found through Amazon, um, also through the publisher's website, which is Central Recovery Press. Um, you can Google my name, and uh, and it'll it'll the book will pop up, and um, you know it can direct you in how to find it. I also have a website, uh, Melissa Glazer, G L A S E R, dot com. Thanks so much, Melissa. This has been very enlightening. It's been inspiring. It's been sobering. Um, it's just been so many things. But thank you for everything that you're doing. And we enjoyed having you on the uh, podcast today and sharing some, some of your experiences with us. Thank you. I really appreciate you giving time to this subject. Thanks for listening to Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Information shared on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should supersede the direction of a medical doctor or any mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review. We would sure appreciate it. Also, please consider sharing this episode with someone who may find it helpful. If you would like more information on working with Matt as your coach, just head over to beyondyourpast.com and schedule your free one-hour chat. If you'd like to learn more about working with Joanne as your coach, please check out joannesuppressi.com and contact her for more information. We're always on the lookout for new guests. If you're interested in joining us on an upcoming episode, just head over to beyondyourpastradio.com and contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.